Hey everyone, you can listen to all seasons of As She Rises, including the new season three, ad-free on Wondery Plus. Before we get to the show, I want to tell you about a new podcast you should be listening to, TED Climate from the TED Audio Collective. The show unpacks the problems and solutions of climate change in bite-sized episodes with host Dan Cortler. This season, they're asking questions like, are we the next asteroid? Is the weather actually becoming more extreme? And what if there were one trillion more trees on the planet? On TED Climate, you'll learn about the climate crisis, but also how you can make changes in your daily life to help create change and find hope. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. Now, on to the show. Closer to the ocean, hotels fester like pustules. The sand stolen from other Aina to manufacture the beaches. Seawalls maintained to keep the sand in, so suntanned oil tourists can laze on what never was, what never should have been. No one is fed plants and fish from this Aina now. Its land value has grown so that nothing but money can be grown. Its water is unpotable, polluted. Each year, as heavy rainfalls flood the valleys, spill over gulches, slide the foundations of overpriced houses, invade sewage pipes, and send brown water runoff to the ocean, the king tides roll in, higher in their warming, lingering longer and breaking through sandbags and barricades, eroding the resorts. This is not the end of civilization, but a return to one. Only the water insisting on what it should always have, spreading its liniment over infected wounds. Only the water rising above us, teaching us wealth and remembering its name. On the south shore of Oahu, at the foot of the Koalau Mountains, is the Manoa Valley. It's teeming with rivers and springs that feed a diverse array of flora and fauna. Fresh water trickles down from the mountains far above and filters through the rocks and plant life along the watershed's path until it reaches a vast drainage basin below. That land is called Waikiki. If you visited Waikiki a little more than a century ago, you'd find yourself calf-deep in water, the land would be sectioned off into fields of taro and peppered with lokoia, small fish ponds. Waikiki consisted of nearly 2,000 acres of marshland, a low-lying plain that collected and purified the water this ecosystem gathered and in turn nurtured the people and other life forms that lived around it. At least, that's what it used to look like. From Wonder Media Network, I'm Grace Lynch, and this is As She Rises. Today, we're traveling to the Waikiki watershed. At the top, you heard an excerpt from the poem, Water Remembers, by Brandy Nalani McDougall. Brandy's poem is about Waikiki, before it was the beach we think of today. My name is Brandy Nalani McDougall. 
I'm Kanaka Maoli, I'm originally from the island of Maui, but I now live in Aiea on Oahu, and I am an associate professor of American studies, I'm specializing in indigenous studies at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. I was inspired to write this poem because of the many changes I've seen on Oahu just in my generation, but also in learning about the many changes that happened generations before me. Most people are really surprised that Waikiki, which is now just this tourist mecca, was ever marshlands and it wasn't an actual natural beach. Yet if you go there yourself and if you've visited other beaches in Hawaii, which are natural beaches, you'll notice the sand feels a little different. The water feels a little different. There's there's certain things that tip you off to how this seems constructed. That's because Waikiki, as it's been known for the last 100 years, is almost entirely man-made. Before it was a beach, Waikiki consisted of swamp and farmland. In the 1400s, Chief Kalamakua set up irrigation systems and fish ponds that sustained both the watershed and the Hawaiian community living there. The valley's streams and springs fed into the taro plantations, which, in turn, supplied the ponds with valuable nutrients. Waikiki was an important landmark for the Kingdom of Hawaii. In the 1800s, King Kamehameha moved his court to Waikiki to oversee its development into a harbor village. And due to its natural surf, it soon became a vacation residence for the kingdom's royalty. Near the end of the century, American colonialists invaded and overthrew the kingdom, leading to the eventual annexation of Hawaii in 1898. In the years following the invasion, Waikiki remained highly coveted real estate, first for farmers, and soon after, for an increasing number of foreign tourists. By the 1920s, Waikiki was primed for urbanization, and the first order of business was to drain the marsh. In less than a decade, the natural land was replaced by the thin stretch of beach we now know as Waikiki. But the man-made nature of the land isn't exactly bragged about in travel brochures. I think there's so little emphasis on the history of the land in Waikiki because the idea of a Hawaii fantasy is so clearly a part of the tourist package or tourist programming that's offered to people who visit here. And what that means is that they don't want people to know how their presence and the presence of generations before them is changing this beautiful place. And the idea of Waikiki is really just that, that there is no history or very little history kind of given, especially of the land. History of Hawaiian culture is given only insofar as it's able to entertain a tourist. But very little information is given about the land and how it was changed 
by virtue of creating the Waikiki we know today. Once it was constructed, um, it completely affected and changed the ecology of the whole island, arguably, but especially the Ahupua'a system. What is often called Waikiki consists of more than just the beach. It's actually part of a larger system, including waterways, valleys, and mountains, called Nahupua'a, a type of indigenous land division in Hawaii. Each Ahupua'a is a wedge-shaped area that runs from the mountains down to the ocean, encompassing various terrains. Brandy described it to me as a self-sustaining unit, a stretch of land that a community would build itself around in order to have access to water from the mountains and the ocean. But centuries-long intervention by American colonizers and a later tourism boom has changed Hawaii in too many ways to count. Hawaii's forced departure from indigenous knowledge is perhaps best encapsulated in the Alawai Canal. The Alawai redirected the valley's streams that originally fed into the Waikiki Basin out into the ocean, draining the marsh and bringing new land to level. Today, the Alawai is a physical demarcation for tourism in Hawaii, literally splitting the residential and tourist sections of the neighborhood in two. Tourism is the largest single source of private capital for Hawaii's economy. And visitors to Waikiki account for 42% of the state's entire tourism revenue. In fact, without Waikiki Beach, it's estimated that the state could lose over $2 billion in revenue. So state officials will do whatever it takes to keep Waikiki intact. Which, as it turns out, is incredibly labor-intensive. Currently... Waikiki Beach is eroding. Most of the shoreline is artificially engineered and requires constant upkeep. In 2012, there was a massive movement to restore sand to the beaches, the first revitalization of its kind in 50 years. Workers shipped in about seven and a half Olympic swimming pools worth of sand. Something on a similar scale will have to be repeated every five to ten years to keep Waikiki looking the way it does now. To that end, this year, another 32,000 tons of sand were brought in. Despite these efforts, Waikiki remains in a precarious place. In 2017, entire sections of Waikiki Beach, as well as roads and beachfront properties, were flooded under high tides. According to a state report, that kind of flooding could become the norm within the next 15 to 20 years. These floods also pose a huge environmental threat. In March of 2006, heavy thunderstorms caused a pressurized sewage line to break. Days later, in order to avoid sewage backing up into hotels, Honolulu's mayor diverted nearly 48 million gallons of untreated sewage into the Alawai Canal. The canal flooded and sewage leaked everywhere. It took months before the Alawai was deemed safe again. Water flowed over. The Alawai Canal 
rose above the level that it should be and overflowed onto the road systems. Um, what this meant was that there was fecal matter, um, really high bacteria levels just flowing into the community. The water was extremely, extremely dirty. You'd see mattresses floating, um, giant like piles of shopping carts, just things from the community flowing into this canal, blocking and then flowing over into Waikiki, into the neighboring communities. There was so much damage. I think a few people lost their lives. Maybe it was just one person because of falling into the canal and then getting a skin disease, eating bacteria. Um, so it was that that dangerous um, and that gross and people still consider it very, very disgusting. That's the voice of Frankie Kothi. She grew up on Manoa and has seen the Alawai through the worst of times. Frankie is the community outreach liaison for the Ko'olau Mountains Watershed Partnership. It's a voluntary alliance of major public and private landowners committed to the protection of native Hawaiian forests in the mountains. Those mountains are the origin of the watershed system, which is responsible for providing 90% of the water to all people living on Oahu. Working in the Waikiki watershed means Frankie has a nearly encyclopedic knowledge of the systems at play. She's familiar with a version of Hawaii most of us will never see, high up in the remote regions of the Ko'olau Mountains. When we are up in the mountains, everything is wet. It is squishy and wet, and most things that you hear are just the water running, uh, the squishy mud and ferns between your spiked tabbies or shoes, and these really wild gusts of wind that can come out of nowhere, and it can be just absolutely silent and then all of a sudden you can hear from miles away these winds coming and brushing into these native palm trees and then suddenly coming into your area and kind of just hurricaning past you. And it's this really, uh, really outer body experience just being surrounded by these huge cliff mountains, massive green hills. Uh, we call these gulches bowls and they're just extremely steep and large and there's, they're just... They feel like they go on forever. The Koala Mountains are about 110,000 acres in size. We work in maybe, I'd say 15% of that in those upper remote regions where we fly by helicopter to get to. And it's amazing. You can walk in one direction. We always walk in a group, the field crew, and sometimes we split apart into two groups and we have to call very far uh, to make sure that we can we, we know where everyone is. And sometimes I've, I've called like at the top of my lungs and nobody can hear me. The mountains are just so dense. It's a very overwhelming but humbling place. Frankie told me why the natural topography of Hawaii is so important. Each part of the watershed system is one piece of a puzzle. It's a delicate system, one uniquely self-sustaining, but only if each part is in working order. And the last time the watershed was in working order was quite a long time ago. Before uh, European or American uh, introduction, the 
Kanaka Maoli or Native Hawaiians already knew that the watershed model ran from mountain to ocean or in Olala Hawaii or Hawaiian, Malka to Makai, meaning that the water at the top of the mountains is absorbed through fog capture, through plants, plant material and the soil and percolates and drips into the rock substrate deep within the mountains and then sits on the level of water above the ocean. And that is where we can tap into uh, for fresh, clean drinking water, which is very unique, very rare and a finite resource. So it's direct, our water is directly related to the biodiversity on the ground cover of our mountains. Whereas in other parts of the world, like in Brazil or in those kinds of Amazon rainforest, the biodiversity is on the canopy level. Our highest biodiversity is actually on our ground level. So it was a really unique system. It was very balanced, I would say, with native Hawaiian populations. And just to give you a perspective, Oahu has about 1.3 to 1.5 million people living here. That was the same population level prior to any kind of European introduction. So they were able to stably hold that population more so than we are now because of their more traditional ways and more working with the natural system. We're gonna take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to look at how one species threatens to destroy this already fragile ecosystem. In this series, we're talking a lot about the harmful effects that we humans have on our planet. And frankly, it can be quite easy for me, or anyone listening, to become anxious or upset when considering the future of our Earth. I'm here to tell you that you're not alone in this feeling of panic. And in fact, we can do something about it. It's called BetterHelp. You probably have heard of it by now, and perhaps you've never taken the step to try it, but maybe now is just the time. BetterHelp will match you with a licensed professional therapist, and you can start communicating in under 48 hours, no matter where you're located in the world. It's not a crisis line or even self-help. It's professional, private counseling that's affordable and convenient. And as you may know, finding the right therapist can sometimes take a couple of tries. So if you need to switch counselors, BetterHelp makes it free and easy to do that. I'm really excited that they're sponsoring this show. And as a benefit to you, they're offering 10% off your first month. Just visit BetterHelp.com Rises. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Rises, R-I-S-E-S, and get 10% off your first month. The history of the Waikiki watershed can at times feel like a comedy of errors with truly tragic consequences. In the 1920s, an attempt was made to reforest Manoa's canopy, which should have been a positive move for the health of the watershed. But instead of planting native trees, a fast-growing foreign species called the Albizia tree was brought in. The Albizia can grow at a rate of 15 feet per year in its first years, and then one and a half feet per year afterwards. That is insanely fast. And unfortunately, the Albizia poses a serious threat to this ecosystem. So arborist and anybody in forestry calls them widow makers because working under them, walking under them, that branch can fall at any time without any wind 
and instead of just kind of smashing or maybe hitting you, it can pierce right through your body and uh, take you out. So they're very, very dangerous. And with that random limb falling during a storm event, these trees will all just come down. And we've seen that happen. And that's what causes a lot of those blockages in those big storm events. Albizias have proven to be a nuisance on every level of the watershed. Their leafy branches make for a thick canopy, but since most of the system's biodiversity is on the ground, these canopies end up absorbing all the rainfall and choking out that flora on the ground. Those plants can't thrive, and as a result, the watershed loses even more of its natural filtration system. To make matters worse, those Albizia branches are so wide and snap off so easily that they often cause the dams and blockages in the watershed that then lead to those floods in the Alawai Canal. So both the beach and the watershed require constant upkeep by crews of people desperately trying to counteract the work of two things that should never have been there in the first place, a toxic canal and an invasive tree. For Frankie, her work also comes from a place of personal responsibility for the actions of previous generations. My grandpa was in the Marine Corps, and he was a corporal, so he was pretty high up there. And then my other grandpa was in the Army Corps of Engineers and was in charge of many of those big projects that are actually very devastating to Hawaii in some ways now, including the reef runway including some of the larger dams on the east side. And I didn't, I didn't really put two and two together. Um, yes, he was big on erosion control and things, but he was an engineer and he was part of those large projects. And I was telling somebody at work about this and they're like, oh, it's like full circle now. You're here to kind of clean up somebody else's mess, maybe like your, your family's in the past. And uh, it kind of stuck. It's like, yeah, I, I do have a responsibility here to use my skills, and not, not just about my grandpa, but any, any other past generation too. It's our job as the present working society to do better. And if we don't, then what example are we to our kids and the next generation after that? So I feel that I need to use my voice, the skills that, that I've built over time that my parents have taught to me to educate and, and work in the earth and do good for our planet and and really try to help sustain our island ecosystem through restoration, through environmental management or uh, malama aina and living that type of lifestyle. So it, it can be challenging, but I, I feel that I'm called here as somebody with responsibility. Part of that responsibility involves respecting the land you're a visitor on, especially as a tourist. Tourism is part of Waikiki today, and that's not going away anytime soon. It's one of the many chapters that has, quite literally, shaped Waikiki through the years. And as we've learned, that shaping doesn't come without consequence. It's pretty likely I won't see Waikiki return to farmland in my lifetime. Still, that doesn't mean tourism in Hawaii needs to look the way it does. It doesn't have to center around a manufactured landscape. If you're planning on visiting, 
Frankie suggested thinking about travel differently, more intentionally. Of course, we always welcome our visitors. We want you to see see things here and, and come and visit us. But when you're here, we want, we want people to be really thoughtful and do some research and, and learn about the resources. And of course, go on a hike and, and don't just hike it to say you got to that one waterfall, which probably now that waterfall is full of bacteria because it's so dirty. But go on that hike to see something that you've never seen ever. I mean, I love to go visit national parks myself. And as someone in a visitor in somebody else's home, I try to learn something about their restoration efforts and native species that are special there and try to at least see one of them. And I think that's that's already a huge impact for a visitor to be like, I really want to see an Ohia Lehua blossom. Oh, oh, come, please come see it. You know, that's huge. If you're on Oahu, you can actually take part in Frankie's work of preserving this fragile watershed and learn about the environment from those who know it best. You can follow more of Frankie's work and even volunteer with the Koalau Mountains Watershed Partnership by going to koolauwatershed.org. While tourism in Waikiki is certainly here to stay in the immediate future, in the long term, it might end up being a different story. King tides are drowning an already unstable Waikiki. And in Brandy's mind, these tides are reclaiming what was always rightfully theirs. So the king tides are tides that when they do come in seasonally, the high tide is much higher and the low tide is essentially or can be really similar to just a usual high tide. So there's a lot more kind of water that can kind of essentially erase the beaches, at least in Waikiki. That ends up kind of infringing upon a lot of the beachside resorts that are there. They're really essentially reclaiming Waikiki as the original place it was supposed to be, it has always been. And so I really believe that, and this is a really, I think, reflective of a Hawaiian belief system in the land or aina as an ali'i or a chief, that, you know, we need to actually follow the land as a leader. We need to put land first and see where it wants to go, what it what is it is already doing. And our job as human beings is to work with that, not to try to change it. So when I see kind of the king tides kind of rising higher, human beings trying to put up sandbags and trying to change the flow of the water or put up seawalls and things like that, it's really just a temporary fix for something that we just really need to completely change in our philosophy and understanding. And I think for me, that continues on even down as we go to um, Waikiki. There's a there's a kind of sense of, of Aina justice that's at play um, there that perhaps, um, you know, we as Indigenous people aren't able to enact or see, but um, there's ways in which our land is sort of reclaiming itself 
um, by virtue of climate change, but also by virtue of it being itself. <laughs> As we come to an end, I want to draw our attention to the final stanza of Brandy's poem, which reads, This is not the end of civilization, but a return to one, only the water insisting on what it should always have, spreading its liniment over infected wounds, only the water rising above us, reteaching us wealth and remembering its name. You can read more of Brandy's poems in her book, the Salt Wind, Ka Makani Pa Akai. We'll include a link in our episode notes. Here's Brandy. So the last, the last stanza of my poem, I did intend to be hopeful, in the sense that um, it's a return to Hawaiian knowledge. And, and Hawaiian knowledge is sort of guiding us through. And what I emphasize there is, you know, there's an idea that these hotels and, and all of this kind of development that happens right on these sort of man-made constructed beaches are not the end of civilization, but it's actually a return to a much older civilization, a much more stable civilization. And that's one in which water dictates where it should go itself. Water remembers that it had and it continues to have its own path and it chooses where it wants to go. And we as humans, as Kanaka, should follow that and understand that. And we really, we have no choice but to understand that. If we are to continue to live on this earth. I do find a way to remain optimistic despite all of the really heavy issues that we face as indigenous peoples and, and as human beings everywhere. I think, I think you kind of have to hold on to hope to keep going. Climate change is a way for us to learn how to be better human beings we can really kind of look at it as an opportunity. So there's hope in the sense that we are going to learn one way or another that the land takes precedence and is so much more powerful than us. Our planet is so much more powerful than us. As She Rises is a Wonder Media Network production. If you're enjoying the show, and I hope that you are, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find us. Or share the show with a friend. As She Rises is created by myself, Grace Lynch. Our executive producer is Jenny Kaplan. It's produced by myself and Liz Smith. Our managing producer is Emily Rudder. Editorial support from Ale Tejeda and Carmen Bocacarillo. Until next time. Hey, everyone. You can listen to every episode of As She Rises, including those from the newest season, ad-free with Wondery Plus. Find Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.